HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. This is our 14th year with Heritage Radio Network. We've got a special show today. Often we, we think about thoughtful and uh, impactful people in the, the world of beer and spirits and the hospitality. And very often they're writers and editors, and I have a lot of respect uh, for these two people. So let's inter- our guests introduce themselves, start with Jeff and then Kate. Hey, Jimmy. I'm Jeff Stialetti. I am the author of several books, most recent one being Imbibing for Introverts, and I'm also editor-in-chief of Craft Spirits Magazine. Great. Thanks so much for joining us. And, you know, I, Thank you. I think every single one of your books, uh, with, the, with the exception of one, you've come on to Beer Sessions Radio with. So your new book's out, Imbibing Introverts, and uh, it, it, it's a great impetus for the show. And um, that's why Kate's here too. Hey, Kate. Hey, Jimmy. Hi, Jeff. It's uh, it's really nice to be here. I am Kate Bernat. I am a Missoula, Montana-based freelance reporter. I primarily cover beer, alcohol, and food sometimes. Uh, and I am also the director of the North American Guild of Beer Writers. All right. And I, I, I that's how I know you. I, I. I think during the pandemic, I joined that organization, and I found a lot of good stories and, and some great contacts with it. So thanks for what you do, Kate. I, re- I really appreciate the North American Guild of Beer Writers. Of course, and we're glad you you joined us. It is not, you know, write, writers is a broad term. We also have podcasters <laughs> and other, you know, and newsletter writers and things like that. So we take a very broad view of writing. It's really more storytelling. So yeah, I'm glad you find value in it. And uh, I'm glad you remember, Jimmy. Well, thank you. So I think we're, we're going to start talking about both of you guys as writers, you know, in the world of, of spirits and beer and editors. Um, Jeff, a little background on you. Um, I remember when you were the editor of my favorite magazine, <laughs> Beverage World. 
Yes, that was a lifetime ago. And um, I know that you were very intrigued by all of the delivery truck content that I had in the magazine. And every time I was on, you wanted me to talk about it. And good, I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm not there anymore because now I would excuse not to talk <laughs> about trucks anymore. Well, you know, at the time when I when I had the, the beer pub, Jimmy's number 43, it was probably the only thing I could relate to. You know, I wasn't a distributor. I, I wasn't dealing with a, a lot of packaged products. But um, those those trucks delivering kegs, I've got a lot of respect for them. So, yeah, well, especially in New fun. York. I mean, I don't even know how they make it down the street. They have to find parking just to deliver the stuff. Well, one time with Justin Kennedy, um, he he pitched a story where the, the photographer Matt Coates um, followed the other half when they when they were just starting about a year in uh, in New York, and basically spent a day with their delivery guy. And seeing all the places in New York they had a, they had to deliver a keg of beer, and some of them were literally v- vertical drops <laughs> that they had to like lower down on ropes and into old basements. So, oh jeez, it's quite a <laughs> yeah. It's it's not pulling up at a Costco or something. Um, but then you know, so you've written all these books as well. I mean, you're you know you're a full time editor and writer. Um, what what powers your you know? the books that you're writing because you've written some really cool ones. You got more into travel and, and, and spirits and cocktails. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, I feel like the trajectory that I've always been on is I guess you'd say I'm sort of a wannabe travel writer and um, you know, all my expertise is in beverages and, you know, I travel for booze basically. And um, so this one, especially I, I, I feel like I'm trying to veer more into that travel writing zone kind of mixed with sort of memoirish kind of stuff. And that's kind of where imbibing for introverts came about because, um, cause I do travel a lot, but i also travel alone a lot, especially when I'm traveling for work. So, um, you know, I'm often drinking alone and I've come to really love it. And, you know, I, I just remember sitting in a bar in, in Portland, Oregon, and coming up with this idea because I was like, this is like, because it was the sort of bar that he'd just like to be left alone and just sort of drink and contemplate. And I'm like, you know, there's, I mean, I'm an introvert. I, I love not being bothered by people. <laughs> so it was just sort of that. And I really do. I really have come to sort of enjoy my own company over the years, you know, and that's, that's kind of where that came from, you know? What 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 is a a bar or you know a, a tasting room that that you like to be in? Um, you want one specific, or do you want like yeah. the sort of place? Um, well, uh, okay, I would say. Well, I always my default is always a tiki bar, only because. Um, and if you want to know specifically which one, I would say Frankie's Tiki Room in Las Vegas. Um, is one of my favorite places on earth um, because I always ha- I'm always in Vegas at least once a year for some sort of work thing and um, I don't necessarily like to do the whole Vegas thing but somebody sort of introduced me to this that bar Frankie's Tiki Room because I knew I was in the Tiki Bars it's off the strip it's you know kind of isolated it's open 24 hours and it's really dark and it's got, you know, all your usual tiki paraphernalia, but it's also got, you know, like 
video gambling machines and whatnot too. Um, but I, it's just a place I love to go, just sit and have a drink. Like if I'm there three o'clock in the afternoon is like the best time to go. I just grab this little corner uh, mini table and just sit there and I just keep ordering and can't really read anything. I probably spend a lot of time on my phone, but you can't really read a book because it's too dark unless it's Kindle. But you know, other than that, it's just such a wonderful place. And they have the best jukebox I've ever found too, because it's like, I'm really into surf rock and they have a, like a jukebox basically full of surf rock. So it's, so that's, that's a rather long answer, but that's, um, no, it's, it's a good one. You know, sometimes you want, you want to go into a bar as, as a refuge, right? Somewhere you can just. Exactly. And you do feel shut off the world. There's no windows. It's just, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I've got your book open, Imbibing for Introverts. Thanks for the copy. Um, you know, since we're, let's say we're, it's the afternoon, wherever we are, and we're in that, that bar that you like so much and you're sitting by yourself, what drink from the book would we be drinking first? Um, well, if we were at Frankie's Tiki Room, I have a drink from there in here. Let me find the page. It's called, I think it's, it's something dragon. Uh, give me a second here. Um, yeah, I got the book in front of me, and it's got some really nice cocktails in it. Yeah, sorry, Surf Dragons was called. Yeah, that's um, that's basically gold rum, one fifty one proof rum, uh, some violet liqueur, Carpano Bianco dry vermouth, orgeat syrup, lemon juice, Fee Brothers bitters, strawberry nectar, ice, pineapple, and Luxardo cherry to garnish. So there's a lot going on there, but that's, um, you know, came in a really cool mug that you can take home if you spend an extra 20 bucks on it. <laughs> wow. That sounds worth it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's boozy too. So you don't want really more than one or two of those. Yeah. Well, that's a great, that's a great intro. You know, um, I always enjoy your books. I remember, you, you know, you're, you're a creative guy as well as, you know, I'm not saying editors aren't creative, but I know you're creative and... <laughs> Remember you, you you made a movie about the a, a beer church. Do you remember yeah. That? What was the name of that? Spirituality. That was pretty neat, right? The world had banned beer except if you had a church or something. Yeah, no, it wasn't really the world. It was just that town. But that was, yeah, that feels like that was a lifetime ago too. Um, but yeah, that was that was a fun little project, and I keep meaning to get that up online somewhere so people can just watch it for free because i was really protective of it for a lot of years now i just you know for the hell of it just want to throw it up it's just a matter of taking the time to upload it to youtube yeah well jeff and said thanks for joining us and and kay we might as well stay with that theme um you know you're i'm sure you travel a lot or you know what are some places you like to drink and are, are you an introvert too <laughs> uh, I'm so glad you asked me that question because I wanted to tell Jeff that in 2013, when I was still writing for a publication in Chicago called Red Eye, I wrote a column called The Necessary Art of Drinking Alone. So I think Jeff and I are on the same wavelength here. <laughs> but that just might be a writer's thing. Uh, I think writers are kind of solitary creatures deep, deep down, even though Jeff and I are wonderfully social people um i think our yeah when we have to habitat, be or at least when i have to be <laughs> <laughs> i think our natural habitat is somewhere alone on a bar stool um i think so maybe 
maybe I'll stick with the Chicago theme there because I lived there for a number of years and get back there pretty frequently for work. Generally, I'm traveling solo, even though I have many good friends still in Chicago. And uh, I had such a wonderful experience last time I was back there. I was actually on my way to dinner and it started downpouring. And I had like half an hour before I had to be at dinner. So quickly ducked into one of my favorite bars anywhere, the Hop Leaf, a Belgian style restaurant and bar. Cheers, Michael. <laughs> yes, cheers, Michael Roper. And uh, I snagged a bar stool by myself kind of in the corner. It was just a rainy day and kind of gross and, uh, you know, ordered a really great um, Czech dark lager from Art History Brewing. And kind of settled in by myself in the corner. And I just thought, this is the best way to kill half an hour. Like what else, what more could I want? I ended up, the guy next to me ended up kind of chatting me up and we talked about beer. He wasn't sure what to order. We had a good conversation. So yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of putting yourself on a bar stool alone and sort of seeing what happens. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, you you, you got to spend time. It, it, it's neat that certain bars can be be something at different times of day and have having different Absolutely. spaces. I I do love your chapter, Jeff, the English pub because I always kind of feel like English and Irish pubs. You know, you may think that they're rowdy, but they've got a lot of divisions. You know, they've got dividers in in between seating and and some dividers at the bar, and you know. Sometimes I just want to get a little corner somewhere and have that drink. And these days it's use my phone, but sometimes just get my thoughts together, you know, or, or go through a to-do list. And, um, you know, you need those, you need those places where you can do that um, in different times of day. And, and it's tricky. You know, there's like that time of day when coffee bars are closing and mm-hmm. happy hour starts and, and uh, you gotta, you gotta find the right place. How about you, Jeff? Absolutely. <laughs> what about me? Well, you got a great chapter here about the English pub. Oh, the, and... yeah, the English pub. Yeah, and it's actually it's interesting because at, right at this moment I'm in London, but um, coming home tomorrow. Uh, but the whole reason I, I I wanted to include that was because I wanted you know the 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 London pub is probably you know it's pretty much the the or it has been historically the the social center of British life. And well, what about going alone when, you know, you're, you're not really, you don't really have that opportunity to be that social. Can you sort of drink socially by yourself without being part of a group or without, you know, watching the footy game on TV or whatever, and just kind of um, just doing it on your own. And then I kind of like, sort of approaching it in that context because I had always over the years the times I've been in London I've always it's always been like a social thing and I did realize that it is really conducive to just kind of sitting by yourself even at the most crowded times you can always find like a very tiny table to sit at and you know no one really gives you weird stares you just kind of can just sit there and be and it's you never get sort of the bums rush that you always feel like you're getting in places in America if they have to turn a table or something like that. But there, it's just like, you know, you can nurse a pint for hours, you know, with a book and 
you know, sure, it gets really, really crowded at certain times right after work and whatnot. But um, as long as you grab a table and you're fine. Okay, do you have any good uh, English pub memories? Ooh, I've only have you been? I've only been to London once, actually, which is um, far too too few of visits. <laughs> but I do think there is something about, like you're saying, the the English style pub that invites that invites that kind of time um, solo. And I mean, even the even the beer styles that are served there just seem sort of designed for lingering a little bit, um, Cascale and all of that. And uh, yeah, I now I just I'm just jealous of Jeff being in London, I guess. <laughs> hey, if I remember correctly, weren't you there right as Brexit, the Brexit vote happened? I, I seem to remember you going there that week, like in 2016 or whatever. I'm so it was. amazed that you remember that. I actually landed the day that the Brexit referendum was approved. It was the most surreal <laughs> time to be there. Um, obviously, there was just a lot of chaos. Uh, the dollar was really strong. I guess that was nice, but um, it was a it was a very interesting time to be there, to say the least. We had some very um heated you know conversations at at bars and dinner parties with uh folks about the yeah about brexit and uh who could have foreseen how it would all go years later but yeah definitely quite a historic time to visit that is for sure it's making england an introverted country <laughs> <laughs> always on theme jimmy <laughs> oh yeah and then on the next page in the book here we go next section the Emerald Isolation, Alone in Ireland. You want to talk about that chapter? There looks like a cool pub here called the Ibby or something. Iggy. 1661. I can't read it. Oh, yeah. 1661. It's, uh, that's, uh, they, they specialize in Puccine. You know, Puccine, it's the, it's Irish moonshine. Oh, yes. Um, it's kind of making a bit of a comeback. Well, I mean, it's only really been legal for 25 years now. It was illegal for like 300 years, but um, that's their specialty there. And I kind of went on, on the last Irish trip when I was writing this chapter, I, I kind of wanted to focus on that a lot. And I was doing, um, I was do actually doing a lot of kind of Boilermaker kind of things too, where um, I would, you know, just pair a Puccine with, uh, you know, a pint of Guinness or something like that, or, you know, the local breweries beer or whatever there. So that was, you know, that's what that was about. And again, I think it's it was sort of a similar theme to the the English pub thing where, you know, Irish, you know, legendary drinking culture. Uh, how do you sort of hang out there by yourself, you know, even, you know, as a foreigner just in that space drinking alone? And there's there are a lot of great places to do that. And um, and it was weird because the time that I went, it was uh Oh, it was in August of 2021 and things had literally just opened there. Like they, I remember it was one bar called the long hall. It's a, basically a long hall. Um, and they, um, the <laughs> server, I'd asked her, um, so I'm like, Oh, you just opened. And she was like, yes, we were closed for 476 days. And <laughs> so it was, it was a strange time. So, wow. Oh, and I see you've got a you've got a Puccine uh, cocktail on page 178. You want to now these the cocktails in the book 
are these your your versions, or are these that you, you you're taking these from other other places? Oh, they're mostly ones that I've collected from other people. I've had a lot of like uh, bars, uh, sort of uh, contribute them. I mean, they're I, I they're probably seven or eight cocktails in this book that I kind of created on my own, but the vast majority are ones that were developed by, you know, really, really pro mixologists, you know, people who've got really big followings, like for instance, uh, you know, Tess Posthumus, who's a really well-known bar owner in, in Amsterdam, you know, she contributed a couple things to this, which was amazing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess you could say I curated them from a lot of different sources. It's it, it's nice. Your your books definitely stay on my shelf, and I like to go back and and look through them. And um, again, this has got a travel theme. It's got England and Ireland. Um, is, is there a, a a brewery that you like in London? Or is there a place that you would, you're seeking out or you would seek out? Uh, well, actually, I I tend to stay near whenever I'm over here. I I tend to stay at the same place, and I'm really close. I don't know if you heard of the Bermondsey Beer Mile. It's kind of a it's yes. in the neighborhood of Bermondsey. Well, yeah, I'm I'm about three quarters of a mile from that. So you know, there's a whole range of them. Like, you know, like Colonel was probably one of the the older, better known ones. And then um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. There's um, oh God, I'm drawing a blank on most of the names now, but. Uh, but yeah, I was just I just did that on Saturday actually. I, I popped in. They they always have this big food market outside in that area, so I just you kind of just pop into whatever brewery is open and grab a pint. Sounds like a lot of fun. Hey Kate, um, since we're again talking about beer writers and spirits writers, you know, let's talk about you and the North American Guild of Beer Writers. Um, My favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, how'd you get involved in it? And um, you know, the community, the, the, the work that you're doing. Uh, cause I think that that all kind of ties together with this. Yeah. Uh, the North American guild, right. Guild of beer writers has existed for decades in some form, uh, since well before I could legally drink or was writing about beer. Um, <laughs> so I feel very indebted to a long line of people who, you know, helped create the guild and sustain it for so long. Um, our, I got involved as a member, gosh, a few years ago, and found it really invaluable. It's a professional development organization, first and foremost. Uh, so it's there to provide, you know, educational opportunities, networking opportunities, um, ways to further beer writers' knowledge about both journalism and beer. And um, those are important passions of mine. Uh, I've went to school for journalism. I've been a journalist my whole career and I've been writing about beer almost that long. So um, it was suggested that I become the director when our most recent director, Brian Roth, stepped down. And um, yeah, it was a really great honor to take on that role. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've been lucky throughout my career to be supported and mentored by people who knew a lot more than I did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, e even people like 
Jeff, who I've, I've known for years, have, you know, really been people that I know I can go to with questions about the industry and about writing books and about which publications are good to write for. And, you know, it, it's, I've, I've been indebted to people that share that knowledge with me. So now this position is a way to hopefully give a tiny bit of that back and to continue learning from our other members. So yeah, we do virtual happy hours. We have a newsletter. We have in-person meetups at peer conferences like the upcoming Craft Brewers Conference. And we have a Slack channel where we share, you know, questions and sources and interesting things we've read with each other. Uh, it's a great crew. We have about, I think, close to 200 members now. And North American is in the title, but people actually live all over the world who are members. So it's, uh, it's a really dynamic group. And I think everyone's really quite a lot of fun, actually, <laughs> in the group. You know, I, I got more involved in it during the pandemic with a lot of the, some of the online seminars and sessions. And that's how I met um, Jesse Bussard and, uh, yeah. and um, Emily Hudo of Radcraft Beer and got more involved with Craft Malt. And, yeah. I, and uh, tomorrow I'll actually be going up to Portland, Maine to the Craft Malt Conference. Um, but awesome. that's really all, that's a North American Guild of Beer Writers uh, connection and and actually you know with all the Love talk that. we're talking about trends too with all the talk about how breweries have to survive or you know what they're making besides beer um because of that connection i found a lot of great stories covering craft malt to me that's like been the most interesting part of beer for me in in the world of at least podcasts you know that's and, awesome um, i'll yeah. be there recording a couple shows so I, I don't, I think, I don't think that, the, I don't think, that, I think to me, and I don't usually tell my feelings, but I feel like the, it's infinite just by getting into the ingredients and talking about them and seeing the, the, the beers that can be made. And I still really love, like in New England, there's Exhibit A Brewing, for example, um, or there's Kent Falls and, and, you know, breweries that are, that are using large amount of craft malt. I think they're thoughtful. We talk about thoughtfulness, but I, I actually I like the beers, and I find it's I never get tired of it. So um, I don't know if you guys, because uh, Jeff, you're writing for Craft Spirits. Do you guys want to talk for a minute about craft malt? Because um, to me, it's it's, it's important. You guys, you can start, Kate, if you want. Yeah, well, I'll be also tuning in, although virtually, to the Craft Malt Conference uh, later this week. I wish I was up in Maine with everyone, but uh, geographically a little far from me here in Missoula. But um, yeah, I guess I'll share a fun experience with Craft Malt recently. Uh, just two weekends ago, I was taking part in the winter workshop with the Montana chapter of Pink Boots Society, which is a professional and educational group for women who, and non-binary people who work in beer and other fermented beverages. Uh, so the Montana chapter had our meeting and we got to tour Montana Craft Malt, which is a relatively new malting facility uh, just outside of uh, Butte, Montana. And it was so cool to get to see the facility because I think craft malt can seem kind of 
abstract it's either like amber waves of grain (laughs) or it's like in bags already at your local brewery so to actually see the facility where they are taking the raw materials from farmers not that far away right like montana is a huge barley growing state also other cereal grains so to really see the tangibly see the way that the process happens um, was really cool. Also, uh, malting facilities smell very good and are warm and humid inside during certain parts of the process. Uh, so it was like a very like <laughs> cozy and fun sensory experience as well. But yeah, those kinds of stories are infinitely interesting when you get into the agricultural side of beer. Oh yeah, and and Jeff with uh, craft spirit. Tell tell us about your current job and uh, you know craft spirits uh yeah well it's just uh we're a digital magazine for the american craft spirits association and launched just under four years ago um and yeah we basically uh are about we're not we're not just the magazine is not just about american craft spirits we have a strong focus on american craft spirits and obviously the membership of the acsa is american but we do do a bit of international writing too and um it's just been great to see the uh, craft spirits industry evolve and grow to now 2700 distilleries across the u.s which is huge and you know uh you know american single malt since you're on the topic of malt american single malt it has become a, a character a category under its own uh, unto its own um and you know, people think of American whiskey, they think bourbon, but bourbon is so crowded as a category. And one area where people who make whiskey, now, you know, we we cover all kinds of spirits, but speaking just whiskey, if you really want to make whiskey and you really want to distinguish yourself, American single malt is really kind of the direction to go. And it's on the verge of getting, you know, a TTB definition which is very, very exciting. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time, not just for spirits, but for, you know, malt-based spirits, because people think single malt, they think Scotland, but now America's kind of come into its own for that. So that's, that's something exciting to watch. And I know, I noticed that for tomorrow's, this weekend's craft malt conference, there's quite a few whiskey and, and spirit speakers. There's the keynote this year is Dr. Rob Arnold who's based in Texas and, and he's involved in plants and flavor, but he's focused on distilleries. And um, there's also a, a single malt, American single malt uh, session as well. So um, it's pretty neat. Like, what, what do you see in craft spirits that, that you like? Um, maybe an anecdote, something that will help our listeners identify with it. Um, I just, I guess what I see is where it is in its development in relation to where craft beer was. Um, you know, I would say if we were to put a timeline on it, this moment in craft spirits is about, let's call it maybe 2006, 2007 and craft beer. So it's a very exciting time. I would say, yeah, I'd say we're probably 15 years, uh, it, uh, and on sort of the development curve behind where craft 
beer was. So we're, we're kind of following that trajectory. And I, and I think that that's exciting to watch. And there's a lot that the industry has been able to learn from craft brewing. And now, I mean, there are a ton of craft brewers now who are adding stills to their operations. So now they're brewer distillers and that's really exciting to watch too. So Jeff, the salad, the salad days for craft spirits are still ahead. If we're talking 20, 2006 and seven <laughs> beer wise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, that's, that's what I would say. I would say maybe we're, we're kind of at the beginning of the salad days. Um, <laughs> we're in the, we're in the amuse bouche portion, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Keep asking questions. This is good. <laughs> well, you put you put me uh, on this on this uh, show with Jeff, who um, obviously, like I have great respect for and great rapport with as a person. So sorry to jump in, and I'm not trying to take over the hosting duties from you, Jimmy. <laughs> oh no, please! That's why you're here. I <laughs> know. And, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah, a great question. I wanted, yeah, I wanted someone that I had a rapport with, so I'm glad. Yeah, there's you know, you're on there's no hierarchy. <laughs> All right, cool. This is a democratic uh, show. Um, Jeff, I, I would be curious. Like you said that um, you said that craft spirits was had learned a lot from craft beers, you know, trajectory. I suppose. What do you think are some of those lessons? I think a big one, and it was early on. It was before I was even involved in the spirits industry when I was still at Beverage World. I, I covered, you know, the ACSA's first convention, which was in early 2014 it was probably it was probably about exactly eight years ago and this was several years before i i worked ended up working for acsa so that was kind of weird but so i, I went to that first convention and a big part of the conversation at that was the very notion of defining craft distilling you know because um and one of the things they really wanted to be careful about was that sort of ceiling on how big you're allowed to get to still be considered craft. And it's about more than just the size of the operation. There's a lot of things, a lot of the same things about, you know, independent ownership and all that too, but also size is a big part of it. And one of the things that they, that kept coming up is everybody had witnessed how many times the BA had to raise the ceiling on their own definition because totally. Sam Adams kept getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> so yep. so yep. we ended up setting, I say we, I wasn't really part of that then, but the, the ACSA ended up setting the size ceiling at 750,000 proof gallons a year, which is just colossal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be a while before most of our membership even gets within spitting distance of that. So, and I think that was the biggest lesson. It was like, you know, anticipate growth. And, um, and we had the lesson of the, the craft brewers growth for that. So it's like, we're going to grow. Um, eventually, we're going to grow so big. At what point do we stop being craft? And I think setting that ceiling at, you know, a very significant height has really kind of been good, because it's created a lot of sort of consistency in the definition where, you know, there wasn't always that consistency with the Brewers Association. That's a great lesson. No shade at the Brewers Association, of course. I love the Brewers Association. I'm just saying that, you know, I think they did have to kind of, there were a lot of press releases went out on when they had to, every time they had to change their, <laughs> the size and definition. Who, 
people had thoughts. Whereas, yeah, if you probably hadn't, if you had just had a higher ceiling from the get-go, then you don't need to have that sort of hand-wringing and existential discussion because it just is what it is. So yeah, that makes total sense. And you guys definitely are kind of on the pulse of all these trends in the industry. And um, Kate, you know, how about a, a recent article that, that you've written? Um, is there one topic that, that is on your mind this week? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like there are just consistent themes that are happening in all my coverage. Um, regardless of what the actual like news is. Um, so I guess, you know, a huge one that I cannot get away from is, is the convergence among different types of alcohol. Uh, so, you know, it used to be, uh, maybe even as recently as 10, five to 10 years ago, you know, you were a brewery or you were a distillery or you were a winery. Um, and if you were a distillery, you made distilled products and breweries made beer and wineries made wine. And now everyone is a beverage company <laughs> that makes many types of products that may not even really be recognizable as one of those things. Um, so take, for example, like one of the best-selling wine brands in the country or fastest growing is Beatbox, which comes in a Tetra pack and is flavored like tropical punches. It's technically made from a wine base, but like, I don't know how many people consider it wine. I don't think it's consumers necessarily consider it wine. It's more like a ready to drink cocktail or something. Um, you know, obviously in, in beer, everyone is diversifying with uh, all kinds of hard Mountain Dew-esque products and FMBs. And it's just kind of a wild time. And, and it's culminating in some really uh, interesting ways. Uh, just today, we got the verdict in the lawsuit between Anheuser-Busch and Constellation over whether um, Constellation was allowed to um, sell Corona hard seltzer in the US because this all hinged on a licensing agreement from 2013 that Constellation could sell Corona beer. And ABI was suing, arguing Corona hard seltzer is not covered by Corona beer, you know, as a, as a licensing agreement. So it was literally a trial about is hard seltzer <laughs> beer for the purposes of that licensing agreement. I mean, these are real. Um, Wait, really what, was the, what was the result? Okay, so the verdict, uh, the jury very quickly after just about an hour of deliberations sided with Constellation arguing that hard seltzer is a beer related product. Therefore, it's covered by that licensing agreement and Constellation can keep selling Corona hard seltzer. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Maybe. No, cool. This is like the wonkiest Stuff. I mean, I don't know how many people at home are like hanging on the edge of their seat for the Corona hard seltzer verdict, but I sure was. Well, that, that's... well I mean, hard seltzer in general, though, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of there are a lot of craft brewers out there that kind of, you know, are like, oh, I'll never, you know, turn their nose up at it like a few years ago. And now they're all making them now because they they know, you know, 
where the wind's blowing in this industry. Well, the wind blows fast because when I first reported on this lawsuit in 2021, the, you know, Corona hard seltzer was like a, I think, uh, a top five hard seltzer brand. It's since, I think it finished 2022 selling only half of what it did the year before. So like, this is no longer the extremely hot commodity it once was, but I mean, it's just really interesting how fast consumer preferences are changing when there are all these blurring lines and new innovation all the time. Um, you know, are, are, are the hard seltzers of three years ago going to be the hard seltzers of this year? Probably not, except for White Claw, which seems like an unstoppable juggernaut. But does it, does anybody remember hard root beers? That's that was <laughs> that was a moment. <laughs> sure was, sure was. Well, I know yesterday Dave Infante was joking about just having hard juice, but it sounds like that wine company is already doing hard juice. Um, yes, and <laughs> and now New Belgium has that. Is it wild nectar? Is I think what Dave was referring to, which literally says hard juice on the package. So we have wow. reached whatever singularity that is. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're reaching the point where I knew we'd end up talking about trends because both of you guys are huge editors in the industry. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. It's our 14th year with Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking about trends and... Uh, We've got two great editors and writers in, in the beer and spirits world, Jeff Cialetti and uh, Kate Bernau. Um, thank you guys so much for joining me. The The reason we're here is that Jeff has a new book out, and Bob being for introverts, and I think almost every one of his books he, he's come on to Beer Sessions Radio and talked about. But we were just talking about trends. Um, I knew we were going to go there <laughs> with with both of you, because I, and I, I do read your articles, Kate, so um, I appreciate it. But like trends versus timelines, and I want Jeff to answer too. So with trends and timelines, let's each of you pick a category or, or some other thing that's measured 
and like how often it gets looked at. You know, people look at whatever stock indexes, whatever, every quarter, let's say. And then who really wants to know? And and why is it so much news? I, I, I did I do notice that so much of beverage media is covering big trends and big numbers. Jeff, do you want to take that first or you want me to? You go first. I'm okay. not quite sure the question anyway, so I want to hear yeah, you I'm answer. Not quite sure the question either. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where I where I took this, <laughs> and then we'll see if it makes any sense. Um, I guess the reason that it feels, I mean, yes, like by its nature, you know, journalism and reporters, like we covered news new new is in the word and and often it's a luxury to get the chance to kind of look at something that is more established and say how is this going how how has this trend progressed is it still what it was you know a few years ago and i feel lucky that i get to do a lot of that reporting for good beer hunting sightlines my um the editorial team there likes those kinds of check-in stories and I enjoy them greatly as well because I think it is worth <laughs> remembering like, hey, hard root beer, where'd that go? What happened to that? Um, but in terms of the pace of, of how, the pace of like data that I'm looking at, for example, um, for the reporting I do for Good Beer Hunting, I can look at IRI data, which is, chain retail scans. So if you go to the grocery store, you go to a packaged liquor store or a Costco big box store and you scan a package of beer, that data goes somewhere. It goes to this massive database that collects all that raw data. And then people, analysts, reporters can slice and dice it to answer questions about what's popular and what's not. Um, that data gets updated monthly for on a four-week basis. So like the beverage trade media is on a four-week, every four weeks they're looking at scans. And like, that's really fast. And sometimes there are just weird anomalies. And I think it's dangerous to read too much into four-week fluctuations because for example, there was kind of a big dip in how Modelo's sales we're doing a few months ago in a four week period. And it was because like California had had historic flooding. So like, of course people aren't going out to buy their favorite beer when it's like the water's up to their doorstep. So I think it's dangerous to, <laughs> to get too in the weeds on the four week scans, at least for the type of reporting that I do. Um, and that's why, you know, people like Jeff and, what I aspired to be is a person with a deep repository of perspective and knowledge about the industry so that you can sort of separate those blips from, you have some perspective, right, on the industry to be able to sort the blips from what's a real movement. I don't know. That's where I took that question. That's a great one. <laughs> Remember, it's not, the, it's, not the an, it's not the question, it's the answer. So Okay, well, I'm... I'm glad I came up with something. <laughs> Soft, it's all softball. So, so because I'm learning too. I, I actually asked the question. If I knew what the answer was, I'd have a better question. So, uh, <laughs> so Jeff, for you, trends, timelines. Um, 
I mean, I really like what Kate said about sort of you sort of divining like a blip from an actual trend because um, in pretty much every beverage industry I've covered, um, everybody's always kind of trying to figure out what the next big thing is and they're ready. They're always um, anointing the next bit, big thing a little too prematurely and um, it ends up being a blip. Um, so I know a few years ago, like I'm, you know, in spirits, I'm, I'm, I've been pretty passionate about the brandy category lately. Um, and there were a lot of articles four or five years ago, you know, mostly in mainstream media saying brandy is the next big thing. And it was like, wait, you know, slow your roll. Um, uh, they're saying it's the next whiskey or whatever. And I'm, you know, everyone was sort of like, yeah, it's getting some great press, but the reality of it is, yes, the category is growing, but it's going to never be anywhere near as big as whiskey, mainly because of the cost and availability of the raw materials. You know, when you're making something out, out of fruit, it's a lot more expensive than making something out of grain. And, you know, we've already got a pretty significant whiskey drinking culture in the United States. So many mainstream consumers don't even know what brandy is. So, you know, you kind of have to like, hold your horses on that and, and I, this is coming from me because i want my next book to be about brandy but the reality <laughs> is um, the reality is it is it's a niche within a niche at this point but i will say i am you know part of one of the things i you know like i i too have to look at industry data i mean iri can be somewhat instructive for me but like you said it's really just major chain store scanner data and um, you know, it doesn't really give you a picture of what's going on in the on-premise. So I sometimes have to go to other sources for that. And they're always basing it on kind of the macro brands, like the macro categories. And I have to kind of try to ex extrapolate the craft part of it and see behind the numbers, like, what does this mean for craft? So having said that, you know, there tends to be you know, everyone talks about premiumization, 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 it's overused, but, you know, but the, the part about that is within premiumization, that's kind of where craft exists. So, and I'm seeing some very exciting things in the gin numbers. If you look at um, gin overall, the category is flat to down most years. But if you look within it, you look at kind of the super premium tiers it's up triple digits and there's a lot of really exciting things going on in American gin, right? I mean, global gin is just, has just exploded. I mean, it conquered, it reconquered Europe and, you know, they're making some great stuff in Japan now. It's just, it's just, the world is gin mad. And I was at, you know, bar convent Berlin a few months ago and Germany itself now has more than a thousand gin brands made there when 10 years ago, I think there were two. So it's, it started, you're seeing more and more and some great stuff happening in the U.S. There's a group of distillers who are starting to organize like their own gin guild, you know, specific to gin. So I say keep an eye on gin. And I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where I'm that's going. A good with one. I, was, I was at a tasting of rye whiskeys and rye bread and things uh, last month in Brooklyn. And uh, Derek von Schlesman of Van Brunt, uh, still house he like was launching his gin he was so proud he had he had a barrel aged gin and a straight up gin 
And um, I always like, I like barrel aged gin. So you're on to something, but I like brandies too. Um, I look forward to your next book. Cause when I cut my teeth in the, in the nineties, you know, beverage buyer and sommelier type, I loved all types of brandies. And I, and I, I didn't get into whiskeys until a lot later. So, um, you know, there's a lot of history behind it and all that. Uh, a couple of fun stuff. We're going to close out soon. Um, well, you know, uh, beer. So a thoughtful beer, since we're talking about, um, and we could, you guys could each talk together for hours. And I, I want that show again <laughs> another time. And Kate, yes, you can always talk on this show. Um, but imbibing for introverts, you know, each of us, let's just think of one thoughtful beer, um, since it, since we're trying to talk about beer too. And I will say that the, what somebody, somebody said this, I feel like it's always Jeff Allworth. It might not have been him, but the next big thing in beer is beer. (laughs) And the way I feel now is I just feel like when I first got interested in beer, it wasn't for the refreshing aspect, which is, which is. So one thing I love about it, it was for the variety of the classic styles and just how, how I felt that there was a beer for so many different moments. Um, and I still feel that way. And, and, and I love seeing more styles right now. So, um, Jeff, what's a thoughtful beer for you in one of your, your pubs, um, when you're not making cocktails, um, thoughtful beer. I, I keep thinking of like Michael Jackson with a snifter. Maybe he was drinking. Maybe he was drinking brandy. Then I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. If you'd asked me ten or fifteen years ago, I would have said I would have very quickly said West Mall Triple um, because I was kind of Belgian crazy. I still, I mean, it's still it's it's an amazing beer and I love it. But um, I've kind of gone. I don't know if it's. I'm just rebelling against the over prevalence of IPAs or whatever because I'm never I've never been an IPA fan, but I've I've been really gravitating like back to basics on everything. Like for instance, I was I was at a bar that had a really decent craft. It was it was in Illinois, and um, they had a decent roster of relatively local regional crafts. But I kind of looked down into the fridge and I saw a Pilsner or Quell and I was like, you know, the classics are a classic for a reason. I'm like, I want a Pilsner or Quell because I think it is the gold standard for Pilsners. And it, it's, you know, I, I kind of sort of turned my nose up at it for years because, Oh, they're, they're owned by a macro brewery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it, it is an amazing beer and it's, it's the perfect example of the style and you know so i i'm always kind of looking out for like that true czech style pilsner and when i see pilsner oquell and i don't see it as often as i used to but when i do see it i'm gonna get one so that's such a good answer i don't know if it was the right answer but it is (laughs) (laughs) now i'm thinking i can tell you exactly where it was the first time i ever had unfiltered Pilsner Raquel on draft and it was like I ordered it drank one I was like I'm gonna be here all night drinking these (laughs) (laughs) um I think my pick yeah I am gonna go Belgian uh my first I was between two okay I'm gonna go with um Terrace Bulba from Brasserie de la Seine uh this is a beer that 
whenever I'm drinking it, which is like not frequent, like Jeff says, like, I wish I had more access to this beer, or just saw it more. But when I do see it, and I do order it, it's like, I just want to know how they did it. You know, it's like a clock that you want to take apart and be like, how? Um, so it's just this real hoppy, well, hoppy for Belgian, <laughs> by Belgian standards, mm-hmm. pale ale. And yeah, it's just that kind of beer that I feel like I can sit and, and turn it over and over like an intricate clock and just think about what the choices were that went into making this beer or you could do none of that and really just enjoy it but I think it my enjoyment of it improves the more I do really think about like the the choices the brewers made to create that beer and how it's so singular like there, it almost stands in a, a category by itself of like extra hop the Belgian pale ale like I don't even know who would take on Terrace Bulba and, or or say like I'm making a beer like Terrace Bulba like no, no <laughs> one no one would dare um so to me it's that's definitely a, n- there's no session IPA that is anything like <laughs> yeah, it totally totally so I could I could sit with that beer and just think about it quietly I think for quite some time well that 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 brings you back to beer the, you know the most exciting thing about beer is beer and I, I'm going to say, since Jeff said we're talking unfiltered Pilsner, Marzen Geschwund did something that whenever I would get it on 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 keg, that there was a magic. There's a magic and a thoughtfulness to it. It's also just so good, you know. It it strikes the many many color of beers and you know it's Vicko beers. Um, there's so many styles of beer that just it's like that extra care, um, and they're usually not as as mass produced, but. Um, We've talked about these kind of things from, and this is our 14th year, and I love that we did come back and talking about beer. Because <laughs> the other one, I'll, I'll say another one, Aventinus, um, Schneider Aventinus, that was one of the first beers that really made me love beer. And, the, you know, that, whatever it is, the Weizen Doppelbach, there's, a, there's also a magic there. It also has a little kick to it. And I do remember an Oktoberfest party with a crazy German artist who was hanging from uh, ropes <laughs> painting on a wall I had eight of those and it was quite the night so <laughs> <laughs> that's uh but, say more about that night <laughs> well you know that's the other thing now is that with everyone talking about you know you can't talk about over and you know over consuming mm-hmm. and I think it fits it fits the moment you know it's if if you're having a good a good experience and social and you're in a safe place with friends and you know there's a beer that's working for you and and you're in good health too you know it assumes you're of a certain age and all that um there's nothing wrong with it you know we've we've all had our initiations into you know responsible social drinking (laughs) and uh but aventinas was was has a great memory for me um but it's there's more to talk about but uh, yeah i think that's probably we'll leave with especially with the the North American Guild of Beer Writers, I feel like it's really opened a lot of doors for people. I love the work you're doing, connecting people. Um, do you feel that you've given people some opportunities through that network? I think the Guild has for sure. Uh, I'm relatively new to the position of director, but I mean, um, every year the Guild um, sort of uh, facilitates a grant called the Diversity and Beer Writing Grant, which we do in partnership with the Brewers Association and Allagash. Um, 
And that grant funds the writing of articles by new and emerging writers in the beer space. So sort of working to ensure that there is a new generation of beer writers always coming through the ranks and getting opportunities to tell the stories they want to tell and investigate the things they're interested in and bring their diverse backgrounds to the reporting that they do. So that's been a really fruitful program. Um, and I'm really looking forward to continuing that diversity and beer writing grant program going forward. That's great. Jeff, do you, do you want to say anything else about your new book before we close out? Well, before I, I say that, I just wanted to say that, uh, Kate, there's no one more qualified to be running this organization than you. And I was absolutely over the moon when you took the reins of the guild and you are one of the best in the business and not just a beer writer, a, you're a true beer journalist. And a lot of that is lacking. So that guild is in amazingly good hands. I just want to say that. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah. And then my book is imbibing for introverts. Get it wherever you get books. And 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 learn what the, the, I do love the chapter on on the English pubs. So thank you. I'm gonna go back to that one several several more times. And we didn't talk about this. So many other beer styles. I guess I guess we need to do more more thoughtful beer beer style shows because now I'm thinking about those other beers like a really good cask of beer. And again, it's things that that can be cliched, but. You, you, Kate and Jeff, you guys know that when you have that right beer, like a Tyrus Bulbo or that unfiltered pills or a real proper cask, and, and you can sit there for a couple hours and it's still at room temperature, right, Jeff? <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. You know, you've got your moment. So thank you so much, Jeff and Kate, for joining me here on Beer Sessions Radio. Uh, big shout out to our engineer, Armin Spingen, who kind of makes this all work. And uh, we'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.